On a beautiful afternoon late last fall, Reverend Kim and I took a walk along the Nirvana Trail here at the Wondama Center. I was helping her with her English, and she was helping me with my practice. So we sat on a bench, and she read the second paragraph of the Diamond Sutra. That day, she read, when it was time to make the round for alms, the Buddha put on his Sangati robe and, holding his bowl, went into the city of Shrabasti to seek alms food, going from house to house. When the alms round was completed, he returned to the monastery to eat the midday meal. Then he put away his Sangati robe and his bowl, washed his feet, arranged his cushion, and sat down. Reverend Kim tur turned to me and said, Do you know what this is talking about? I was puzzled. What could I not understand from that paragraph? But she said, This is talking about emptiness. This past year, I've had the good fortune to attend two semesters of canon classes at the Wan Institute for Graduate Studies, which delved deeply into the teachings of the founding master, Sotesan. When our minds probe consistently into profound teachings, we begin to see things from a rarefied point of view, less concerned with the minutia of daily life, absorbed instead by the primordial and the eternal. So our minds expand and begin to make space for realizations and awakenings. As we move forward along the doctrine and practice of Sotesan's teachings, <clears throat> we arrived at the following quote, driven by great motivation in spiritual search. When practitioners study and practice have reached a certain depth, he becomes so preoccupied with one great question that all other questions disappear. I have never heard that before, but I knew right away that for me, that question was emptiness. Emptiness, empty of what is the first question you might ask. Today, I want to talk about emptiness of self. Let's take a look about what Reverend Kim was talking about when she said that the second paragraph of the Diamond Sutra was about emptiness. All those details, those careful, attentive details, the Buddha put under the robe he wore for the alms round, went house to house, returned to the monastery, ate his food, put away his robe and bowl, washed his feet, arranged his cushion, and sat down. All those details, Reverend Kim says, are awareness. They de depict an undisturbed, undivided state of mind. There are no extraneous details, no references to anything else, just simple and bare descriptions of the actions at the time and the place where the Buddha was about to deliver the sutra. That is what it feels like when we are present and aware, when we are in the state of no mind, the state of emptiness. A few days ago, I listened to a lecture by Tai Si Tupat Rinpoche. 
teacher of the 17th Karmapa, titled Inner Peace. He expanded on the meaning of the title, saying that outer peace, or world peace, if it were to be possible, would be the result of the majority of the individual's inner peace because we each affect our environment to a degree that the lack of wisdom and the ignorance of one world leader can start a world war just through the projection of his own inner conflicts, as we have all seen happen. To a smaller degree, we all do that. We project our wrong perceptions onto our families, friends, colleagues, and everyone we meet. It's a scary thought. The amount of responsibility we each have to look inward, to face and release our pent-up emotions, for the ego will manifest its conflicts. Everything, the world, each and every one of us, the phenomena of the natural world, consciousness, etc., is all made up of the very same stuff. There are three aspects to everything. Essence, characteristic, and manifestation. Our shared essence is emptiness because we all come from the same root, the primordial wisdom, which is the void of pure potentiality or ill want. We are all identical in nature. Our quality is clarity, like clear water. And everything manifests in myriad ways. But in the end, it's all the same. You may be looking at me thinking she is a woman of a certain age, a foreigner because of her accent, a Buddhist because of the context she's in. But in reality, you, regardless of your gender, age, ethnicity, or context, are exactly the same as me. The rest is perception. It's what we see with our mundane eye, which tends to look at things from the roster of memories and to discriminate everything and parcel it into different chunks of reality. In the end, though, it is all empty and identical because it is all interdependent and originates from the same primordial wisdom. At the end of that same fall walk with Reverend Kim, as we approached the Vaughan Dharma Center buildings, we had another inspiring conversation. I had heard the story that since Buddha emphasized the importance of good karmic ties with teachers and Dharma friends, Ananda asked them, is having good teachers and Dharma friends halfway to attaining Buddhahood? The Buddha said, having good teachers and Dharma friends is attaining Buddhahood. I asked Reverend Kim the meaning of that teaching, and she answered candidly that every person who is awake creates a Buddha field around him or herself. 
and that amounts to Buddhahood. It took me no time to understand what she was talking about. The afternoon walk with her along the beautiful trails in a crisp and colorful fall day while we talked about Dharma and about life, interlaced with fun and laughter, provided the perfect backdrop for that understanding. What could be closer to Buddhahood on this earth than that simple but complete experience? Four and a half years ago, I went through one of those life events where in one split second, everything turns upside down. I have spent these last few years finding a way to restructure my life. A few weeks ago, I woke up early with a strange sense of discomfort that immediately turned into a flash of profound understanding. My mind was so clear. While I was still partially asleep, that I knew if I didn't recur that realization, it would just vanish from my memory. I also knew that getting my notebook, turning on the light, and beginning to write would dissipate the clarity. So I reached for my phone and began to record the following stream of consciousness. I was meeting with my therapist, Paul, in person for the first time. We had been seeing each other for all these months, a year now, only through video, with, a bare, with barely a little square of reality around us. Now we were sitting across each other in a context that was real and I sensed a discomfort, so I said to him, we're both thinking about how different things really are. There was more of a discrepancy for him in the dream because we had come, he had come to see me, so he was getting to see my dusty world. So different from anything I would have framed within my little Zoom window where he would see only what I wanted him to see. In my world, the table between us was an old school table from my past with his knife engraved names and rugged edges. Paul kept looking at me, seemingly focusing on my most vulnerable points, those aging details that I so disliked seeing in the mirror. When I am in Zoom, I can see how little other people can really see those details. But with Paul visiting me in person, he now saw what I had been seeing all along. So when I commented on how different things really are than what we'd been seeing, Paul reacted by saying something wise and insightful, as he always does. He said, yes. But truth tops that. It allows us to see what is really happening. And if we are brave enough to see, to say okay to it, then it is very beautiful. It is beauty itself. My recording continued. What this has triggered in me is the need to really look at what has been making me so uncomfortably lately the whole extended time of transition into a new life of my own, 
that is true to everything I stand for and believe in is making me have to face that my version of reality is very different from reality. My version of reality is my image of myself, the one I've created so carefully by choosing what I show in my little square of Zoom life. And I'm talking about not just what I show other people, but what I show myself. I know that other people can't see most of it, but I can. I know it's all there. And like Paul says, it's very beautiful. I've gone into calling this the scab, this thing I feel, that I've had a scab that covers the wound of reality. The scab is lifting. The wound is healing underneath. And the scab is about to fall. But it takes an immense amount of courage to see what everything looks like without the scab. The scab is the armor against truth. And I am afraid to let it fall because I am going to have to accept the naked truth of reality instead of my version of reality. And this whole transition is where I'm feeling that everything is changing, that I am changing. Shedding the skin of made-up reality, the skin of assumptions, of false creations, of parapets and scaffolds that I have so carefully created. Because there is no self, it takes a lot of courage to see this dusty world for what it is. It's such a beautiful Buddhist term, this dusty world. And it is so dusty. It is unlike anything we want. But if we can take the dust away, if we have the courage to really look at it and experience it, if we have it in us to do it, that is the gift. That is the great gift. That is actually Buddhahood. That is the true extension of what we call reality. That is where we see truth. Recently, I ran into Cardinal Master Chongsan's teaching on the different levels of chanting practice. The teaching stressed that merely intoning the Buddha's name was only for beginners. And he explained the concentration on one sound of reciting the Buddha's name by focusing on the Buddha's mind and the power of the Buddha's vow is the recitation performed by true practitioners. I sat down to chant and decided to follow the three steps of Master Chong San's teaching. I listened to the one sound of my voice, then took my mind to that sense I can bring about, even if just for a moment, when I say to myself, the minds of the Buddhas. As soon as I felt that empty, expanded sense of vastness for a split second, I conjured the Buddha's vow to lead all sentient beings to nirvana, and in that same split second, 
I realized that vow was also my vow. And my mind opened into a colorful view of all the people that make up my existence in this reality. There were so many in the background. And in the foreground, there were those recognizable to me. At that moment, I understood in a glimpse that I could not possibly feel any anger or resentment toward any of them because they and my experience are one and the same. At that very same split second, the light of my whole existence was blown out like a candle and everything went black, including me. Of course, at that same split second, I was back chanting, but I had understood, without a shadow of a doubt, that for there to be any possibility of nirvana in my existence, nirvana is represented in traditional Buddhism <clears throat> as the blowing of a candle that results in the extinction of this reality, since the word nirvana means extinction. I would have to transcend any vestige of negative emotions towards anyone that appears in my life, no matter how unknown to me, even those I just hear about. For otherwise, that attachment would preempt the possibility of extinction. No one relationship has seen been the same. No matter how seemingly insignificant, I act on the intention to transcend any and all animosity and make every tie pure and clear. It remains for now an intention, but very slowly it is growing into a reality. Certain flashes of clarity are gifts from our growing understanding. But at what point do we actually turn them into vows and let go of our armors and our own versions of reality? How do we know when our bodies and minds are ready to jump levels with enough conviction to withstand the jolts of doubt and inadequacy? When do we find the courage to confront the fear to enter the unknown? Robin Yu always reminds us to refine our vows or to make new ones because the vow will not just be a clear goal to achieve, it will pull us in the direction of Buddhahood. So when do we make the ultimate choice, if not now? Sodesan reminds us to do it as soon as possible. And elsewhere in the scriptures, he explains, because the matter of birth and death occurs rapidly, it is not something to take lightly. Thank you. Thank you.